Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, uh, July 30th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire reports, and uh, we'll be featuring dispatches on the recently uh, staged uh, military coup in the West African state of Niger, where there have been pro-Russian demonstrations in the capital of Naomi earlier on Sunday. The BRICS summit is gearing up for their upcoming gathering in the Republic of South Africa. We'll have details on that as well. The Russia-Africa summit has concluded in St. Petersburg. We'll have additional uh, reporting on that. And Mali is battling the impact of drought uh, in this landlocked West African state. In the second hour, we look closer at the situations in Niger, as well as the Russia-Africa summit that was uh, just concluded. Finally, we review some of the major events of 1963 in regard to the African-American struggle for equality and uh, empowerment. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, uh, so stay tuned. We, of course, uh, are here every week uh, at uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And, um, of course, uh, if you want to have access to the programs. We'll give you information uh, at uh, the uh, later point in our uh, program uh, about how you can uh, have access to these programs as well as uh, how uh, you can read uh, the Pan-African Newswire on a daily basis. And of course, uh, we're going to take our musical interlude uh, at this time. And of course, we're going to listen to uh, the music of uh, the West African state of Benin. Let's listen in.
classic uh, Pan-African music uh, from the West African state of Benin, and uh, that uh, was taken from a collection of uh, songs entitled uh, Legends of Benin, and Legends of Benin is a collection of super rare and highly danceable masterpieces recorded uh, between 1969 and 1981 by four legendary composers from Benin, uh, known as Pedro Ese Jadis, Antoine Dugbe, El Rigo El Sescomandos, Honoré Avalonto. Uh, each one of them, with their own distinctive sound, uh, is brought out in this album. Uh, what we heard uh, was uh, a thick brew of Agbaja, uh, rhythm and blues, Cavache, uh, uh, funk, Afrobeat, Afro-Latin sounds, uh, all mixed in uh, with heavy traditional rhythms distinctively Beninese in sound. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, uh, July 30th, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And our lead story uh, deals with the unfolding security and geopolitical situation in the West African state of Niger. Uh, West African nations imposed sanctions and threatened force uh, earlier today if Niger's coup leaders uh, failed to reinstate the ousted President Mohamed Bazoum uh, within one week while supporters of the junta attacked the French embassy in Niamey. The 15-nation ECOWAS bloc's uh, response to the Sahel's region's seventh coup of recent years came as crowds in Niger's capital, Niamey, burned uh, French flags and stoned the former colonial powers mission, drawing tear gas from local police. Now, images uh, showed fires at the embassy walls and people were loaded into ambulances uh, with bloodied legs. At an emergency summit in Nigeria to discuss last week's coup, leaders of the economic community of West African states called for constitutional order to be restored, warning of reprisals if not. Such measures may include the use of force, their communication said, uh, adding that defense officials would meet immediately to that effect. Chad's uh, president, uh, Mohamed Idris Dibe, who came to power in 2021 after a coup, met his Nigerian counterparts, Bola Tinubu, on the sidelines of the summit and volunteered volunteer to speak to the military leaders in Niger. Two presidential aides uh, told this to the international press, asking not to be identified. Niger's state TV showed Dibe arriving and meeting them. ECOWAS uh, and uh, the eight-member West African and Monetary Union said that within immediate effect, borders with Niger would be closed, commercial flights would be banned, financial transactions would be halted, and national assets frozen, and aid ended. Many uh, military officials involved in the coup would be banned from traveling and have their assets frozen, it added. Niger's Prime Minister, Bazoum's government, Wahu Mudu Mahamu, uh, said ECOWAS sanctions would be disastrous because the country relies heavily on international partners to cover its budgetary needs. I know the fragility of Niger, 
I know the economic and financial context of Niger, having been the finance minister and now prime minister, Mohamedou, who was abroad when the coup occurred. He told this to the uh, France 24 television network uh, in Paris. This is a country that will not be able to resist these kinds of sanctions. It will be catastrophic. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken welcomed ECOWAS's action earlier today. We joined ECOWAS and regional leaders in calling for the immediate release of President Mohamed Bazoum and his family and the restoration of all state functions to the legitimate democratically elected government, said Blinken in a statement. Now, similar sanctions were imposed by ECOWAS on Mali, Burkina Faso, and Guinea uh, following coups in those countries over the last three years. Although the financial sanctions led to defaults on debt, in Mali in particular, such measures have tended to hurt civilians more than the military leaders who took power in some of the world's most oppressed countries, the political analysts are saying. Timelines to restore civilian rule have been agreed in all three countries, but there has been little progress in implementing them. The military coup in Niger, which began unfolding on Wednesday, has been widely condemned by neighbors and international partners, including the United States, the United Nations, the African Union, the European Union, and former colonial power France. They have all refused to recognize the new leaders led by General Abdurrahmani Shiani. Niger has been a key ally in Western campaigns against so-called insurgents uh, linked to the Al-Qaeda and Islamic State organizations in the Sahel region in Africa. And there are concerns that the coup could open the door to greater Russian influence in Niger. Thousands of French troops were forced to withdraw from neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso following recent uh, coups in those countries. Niger is one of the most uh, underdeveloped countries in the world, receiving close to $2 billion a year in official development assistance. That's according to the World Bank. The United States, France, Italy, and Germany have troops there on military training and missions to fight purportedly Islamic insurgents. Niger is also the world's seventh biggest producer of uranium. The radioactive metal, uh, widely used uh, for nuclear energy and in nuclear weapons, as well as for treating cancers. Ahead of the summit, Niger's junta had warned that ECOWAS was considering an imminent military intervention in collaboration with other African nations and some Western nations. We want to once more remind ECOWAS or any other adventurer of our firm determination to defend our homeland, uh, Junta spokesperson Colonel Amadou Azamani uh, said. At their invitation, thousands of people rallied in the capital on Sunday, some heading to France's embassy. Sani Adrisa uh, said, we are here to express our discontent against France's interference in Niger's affairs. Niger is an independent and sovereign country, so France's decisions have no influence on us. Similar to events in neighboring Burkina Faso in September of last year, following a coup, some protesters tried to climb the embassy walls while others stomped on burning French flags. They were dispersed by Niger's National Guard. France condemned the violence and said anyone attacking its nationals or interests would face a swift and stern response. The Arab coup d'etats in Africa must stop. They are not acceptable. And that's according to the French Foreign Minister, Catherine Colonna. Catherine Colonna told uh, the 
RTL Radio Network, adding that the situation had calmed by the afternoon and no evacuation of French citizens was planned. The European Union and France have cut off financial support to Niger, and the United States has threatened to do the same. Sunday's ECOWAS communique thanked nations in line with the bloc stance, but, quote, condemned the pronouncement of support by foreign governments and foreign private military contractors, end quote. Russia's Wagner uh, mercenary boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who remains active despite leading a failed mutiny against Russia's army's top brass last month, has hailed the coup as good news and offered his fighters uh, services uh, to bring order. And uh, there's additional uh, information on the situation in Niger. Nigerians participated in a march called by supporters of the coup leader, General Abdurmani Shiani, in Naime in Niger earlier today, uh, Sunday, July 30th, 2023, just days after the mutinous soldiers ousted uh, the former president, Mohamed Azoum. Thousands of people backing the coup in Niger marched through the streets of the capital denouncing France, the country's former colonial power, waving Russian flags and setting a door at the French embassy ablaze earlier today before the army broke up the crowd. Demonstrators in Niger are openly resentful of France, and Russia is seen by some as a powerful alternative. The nature of Russia's involvement in the rallies, if any, isn't clear, but some protesters have carried Russian flags, along with signs reading, Down with France, and supporting Russian President Vladimir Putin. The Russian mercenary group Wagner is operating in neighboring Mali, and under Putin's Russia has expanded its influence in West Africa. The new junta's leaders have not said whether they intend to ally themselves with Moscow or stick with Niger's Western partners. French President Emmanuel Macron said earlier today that attacks on France and its interests would not be tolerated, and anyone who attacks French citizens will see an immediate response. Niger, a former French colony until 1960, had been seen as the West's last reliable partner battling their so-called jihadists uh, in the war on terrorism in the African Sahel region. France has 1,500 soldiers in the country who conduct joint operations with Nigerians. The United States and other European countries have helped train the nation's troops. And if you want to read more on developments in Niger, uh, all you need to do is log on to the Pan-African Newswire, and we'll have um, additional um, information uh, later on in the program on developments in Niger. In other news, uh, Ethiopia's BRICS membership request has to follow systematic diplomatic moves not to infringe in the smooth ties so stated and political and international relations experts. Speaking to the Ethiopian Press Agency, Institute of Foreign Affairs senior researcher Darius Kader Taye said that Ethiopia should appeal BRICS members' countries again and again to approve its membership requests. For Ethiopia being a member of BRICS is desirable, and it can garner comparative advantage out of BRICS membership, but it needs methodical diplomatic approaches to not harm Western amiable relations. Uh, he said that, quote, BRICS has its own platform and organization to help members of states. So Ethiopia would be beneficial if its membership would be approved. Besides, the bloc has been working to make the global trade exchange fair. 
So involving Ethiopia in this task will also result in mutual benefit. As it could also help Ethiopia economically, it will contribute crucial political role to the bloc too, unquote. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And uh, the Russia-Africa Summit uh, just concluded in St. Petersburg in the Russian Federation. Ethiopia and Russia signed sets of agreements to strengthen bilateral cooperation during the second Russia-Africa Summit. The agreements were signed by members of the Ethiopian delegation participating in the Russia-Africa Summit at St. Petersburg. The two countries agreed to enhance information, business, and infrastructure cooperation. According to local media reports, the State Minister of Foreign Affairs, Ambassador Mr. Dangu Aga, and the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, signed the agreement between Ethiopia and Russia to work together on international information security. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And finally, uh, in the West African state of Mali, recurrent droughts have altered the characteristics and composition of Mali's vegetation. Pastoralists and agro-pastoralists that are typically found in the arid and semi-arid areas in the north, where rainfall is less than 400 millimeters per year, are especially vulnerable to the impact of climate shocks. Considering Mali's bout of recurrent drought, floods, and locust invasions in recent years and their major economic and social impacts, the latest World Bank economic update on Mali provides keen insights into this climate shock. The 2023 economic update for Mali notes that droughts are adversely affecting the livestock sector, one of the most important economic sectors in Mali and the region. Livestock farms accounts for 40% of the gross domestic product of the primary sector and about 15% of national GDP is a source of livelihood for 85% of farmers and generates income for approximately 30% of the population. That's roughly 6 million persons. In addition, Mali has the second largest herd in the ECOWAS region after Nigeria with 60.1 million head of cattle and that's according to figures from 2019. According to the study, Mali experienced at least 40 major climate shocks between 1970 and 2020. For example, drought is estimated to have affected approximately 400,000 persons each year and led to $9.5 million in losses from crops annually. Locust infections, infestations in 1985 to 1988 and 2003 to 2005 destroyed millions of hectares of crops, but the impact on the population was not measured. And with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. Concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time, the Newswire has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source 
on Pan-African and Global Affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, <clears throat> just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, uh, have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, July 30th, uh, 2023. All you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for uh, this week. in Niger has been in the news across the world over the last several days. 
And uh, the Pan-African Newswire has been covering uh, the situation extensively. Uh, Niger is a strategic location uh, within the broader context of the imperialist uh, construct of a military-industrial complex. Uh, it is a large-scale producer of uranium. Uh, it is also uh, a base uh, for U.S. military uh, operations, along with French military operations and other NATO states on the African continent. Let's listen to this report uh, on uh, the situation in Niger. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. A group of military officers in Niger have taken over power and declared General Abdurrahmani Chiani as the country's new leader. This marks the ninth coup or attempted power grab in Western Central Africa in the last three years. The region has tried to share its reputation as a coup belt in the last decade. However, the trend has escalated. There have been military takeovers in Mali, Guinea, Chad, Sudan, Burkina Faso and now Niger. There was also an attempted coup in Guinea-Bissau in 2022. The fall of the civilian government has further complicated the security situation in the Sahel region. Political analysts say the coup could have grave consequences for democratic progress and the fight against militants in West Africa. So this week, we delve deeper into the state of coups in the region, analyze how this may affect security in the Sahel, and discuss some long-term solutions to military takeovers in Africa. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, joining me now to unpack the latest coup in West Africa are from Abuja, David Otto Endele, Director at the Geneva Centre for Africa Security and Strategic Studies. In London, Dr. Alex Vines, Head of the Africa Programme at Chatham House. And with me here in studio, Dr. Hassan Kaneje, Director of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies and a Conflict Resolution and International Relations expert joining me here in studio. Thank you all for being a part of the program. David, let me start off with you because you're watching this from neighboring Nigeria. Soldiers in Niger have announced a coup. They have said they had dissolved the constitution, suspended all institutions and closed the nation's borders. First off, what is the prevailing situation in the country following this announcement? Uh, well, I've spoken to a couple of colleagues um, who are based uh, in Niger Republic, and the key things that they're saying now is that at, the, at, at present, uh, I can hear myself. On Go ahead, David, I can hear you. Um, I, I think the key issues now, issues now that they are facing in Niger is that um, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, the population on one hand is divided in terms of uh, um, who supports earlier on um, when there was still more the supporters you know were calling for to be restored uh, and then later on when the coup leaders announced um, that they had taken over officially um, we then saw a situation where um, there was more protest for 
um, you know, some kind of anti-French thing. At the moment, um, this is a clear indication that, you know, there is an issue of democracy, especially in the Sahel. Um, this coup is the fifth um, in the history of Niger Republic. And there was a lot of expectation uh, by Nigerians um, that, you know, the first uh, political transition to power in a democratic system will be sustained. Uh, but in the backdrop right. uh, of what has happened um, in the case of Mali and the case of Burkina Faso, um, this is, um, you know, a further destabilization of ECOWAS. And, you know, perhaps, you know, the question now is um, what country is next in line, you know, um, with, with this affair of a military coup. Dr. Kaneji, let me talk about that first uh, transition to a civilian rule for Niger because when Mohamed Bezoum came to office in 2021, it was the country's first democratic transfer of power since um, independence from France in 1960. What exactly are the main reasons being cited uh, by the military leaders uh, regarding the reasons for this coup? The reasons being offered, um, more or less the same reasons have been offered by other coups, especially in the neighboring countries of Mali, Burkina Faso and the like. And that is uh, uh, the, the deterioration of security as well as uh, you know, economic mismanagement uh, by the government. And the election of this current president was actually uh, provided some kind of glimmer of hope that uh, not just Niger but perhaps uh, West Africa was uh, trying to move towards a more stable tr democratic transition. And so to the extent that this has happened where it's not surprising, it speaks, I think, to the larger phenomenon of steady democratic decline that we have seen, uh, not just in West Africa but across the continent. That decline in democracy and stability. Dr. Vines, you know, the region has seen multiple coups in recent years. And to mention just a few, including Niger's neighbors, Mali and Burkina Faso recently, considering these complex regional dynamics in West Africa that Dr. Haneje has talked about, how will the Niger coup impact regional security efforts to combat, you know, threats like extremism? Yes, the coup in Niger is very serious. Um, Western countries had reconfigured their, their, their security uh, partnership posture to focus on Niger. So the United States, the EU, um, the United Kingdom and others had all been uh, providing resources uh, and, and saw uh, the Niger uh, uh, government as, uh, as a, a democratic one that needed international support. That's now been jeopardized. We've had the announcements today of suspension by the EU and the US, uh, and we've had also the continental body, the African Union, saying that the, 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 the putschists need to step down within 15 days. So this shows the seriousness of the situation. It shows the seriousness of the situation, but actually going back to what ECOWAS has asked for and what the African Union is also asking for, do you feel, though, Alex, that uh, you know, the military leadership We'll listen to that. Yeah, look, that, that's a really good question. And I think uh, the putschists, uh, the, the coup leaders, will have miscalculated here because they, they were following the rule book that they saw has occurred in Mali, in Burkina Faso, uh, in, in a way also in, in Guinea, uh, and Chad, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, but what they haven't realized is there's a change of government in Nigeria. That is the regional superpower. President Bola Tinubu is allergic to putschists. He has been detained by military dictatorships. It is something that he does not stand for. And so he is the chair of ECOWAS. 
And so there's an overlap now in terms of, I think, a lot more spine by the regional economic community, ECOWAS, and the, 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 the new Nigerian government. And so the summit tomorrow that the ECOWAS is going to hold will result, I think, in sending very senior chiefs of defense staff to Niamey to tell the Putschists the Riot Act. And if they don't step down, then there's both sanctions. But there is even the option of a military engagement uh, down, down the road. Mm -hmm. This is very different, I think, in terms of the response that we've seen in the, uh, over the last decade in West Africa. David, let's explore that position of the ECOWAS chairperson and uh, president of uh, Nigeria, Bola Chinubu, whom, of course, Dr. Vines uh, says uh, is averse to military coups. You know, Bola Chinubu stated earlier in July, and I quote that, we will not allow coup after coup in the West African sub-region. The question here, though, is why have there been so many coups in the region in the last few years? Well, um, yes, you're right that um, President Bula Tinubu, when he took uh, the chairmanship of the um, ECOWAS, he made it very clear in his speech um, that, you know, ECOWAS will not allow any coups. But, you know, at the time when he was saying this, perhaps this was the time when uh, the Putschists um, were preparing to launch the coup d'etat, because uh, this is not quite long from that, uh, from that moment. Um, a coup does not take a day to prepare. I think, you know, it's beyond rhetoric. Um, what the ECOWAS needs to do mm -hmm. um, is to um, look at mechanisms um, that will prevent coups from happening in the continent. Um, the difference uh, that ECOWAS has is the fact that um, the geopolitical strategic location Republic is in such a way that it is bounded um, by countries like Mali and Burkina Faso, who've mm -hmm. already um, successfully carried out their coup d'etat. Uh, that means there's a possibility um, that the junta would rely very heavily on the support of Burkina Faso and Mali. That means it will be very difficult for ECOWAS, who is holding a meeting uh, to discuss this issue, to apply some certain sanctions. Uh, because, of course, you know, the junta might uh, on the um, advantage that they have uh, with countries like Burkina Faso and Mali. So it, the ECOWAS has to be very careful uh, in terms of what kind of sanctions that it applies. But I don't one minute uh, that ECOWAS will want to deploy because of course um, all the, the key sister agencies you know have agreed uh, to right. join the coup um, planners and that means um, yeah it's going to be difficult for you to get any kind of success when all the military units you know are in for the coup. So Dr. Hadeje I, I want to get your feeling though on exactly how much um, influence uh, in the region stability in Niger has had but most importantly you know French and US troops have been in the Sahel now for, for decades. Are these external forces part of the problem or part of the solution and exactly how much destabilization uh, going by what David has said how much destabilization has this caused uh, in the region? I think one thing that is important, uh, first of all, is to underscore uh, the role that initially was played uh, that led to some of these instabilities. And that has a lot to do with uh, the collapse of the state of Libya and uh, the role that French, uh, French as well as American forces may have played you know, in doing that. It, that fueled you know, a chain of events that has led to instability across the Sahel. Mm -hmm. uh, but today, of course, uh, we know that Niger has been used as a frontier in the fight against uh, extremists. 
and a number of Western countries have invested very heavily. It's been a favorite in terms of aid as well as other efforts to try and establish the region. But I think uh, what that did not uh, factor in is there was a disconnect between the street as, you know, the street from the, the government. There is a likelihood that perhaps even the foreign powers did not exactly understand the complexity of Niger politics, mm -hmm. much like they haven't understood the complexity of uh, the politics within much of West Africa and the rising anti-French and anti-Western uh, sentiment that is actually imminent and the kind of sentiment that, of course, coup plotters are always exploiting to advance their objectives. Dr. Vines, what's your view? These countries who have invested heavily in uh, Niger, are they part of the solution or part of the problem? And we are talking here about uh, France and the United States. Yeah, look, uh, only a couple of weeks ago, UNDP launched a big report that was analyzing why are there coups back in fashion in Africa and what do you do about them? Mm -hmm. And they had interviewed 8,000 people in, in countries that had coups or, or had come out of coups. And the conclusion was that the, the, the drivers for coups and the support for them were about poor security, and we can all understand that, be they in Mali or in Burkina Faso, that people want improved security and the lack of human development, human security. And so those are, clearly are the pathways out. The, only, the positive part of the UNDP study is that uh, there is buyer's remorse. Um, interviewees in, 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 in Bamako and in Ouagadougou Basically, the end goal is they do want accountability of government and they do want more democracy. Now, in the short term, I think the big difference that we are seeing is that Nigeria has been asleep for the last decade, more or less. It hasn't had a robust regional security policy. And now you can see that Nigeria is very much more serious about the region and it's near abroad. And so I wouldn't underestimate the Nigerian resolve to make a case of Niger, which will then frighten very much the, 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 the purchase regimes in Ouagadougou and, and in Bamako and send a warning signal to, to, to them also that they need to keep to their timetable to return to constitutional government. So, Dr. Haneje, uh, I, I want to get your view on just exactly how deadly extremism is uh, in this region. And what do you make of this uh, United Nations Security Council report where it says that in West Africa it has recorded over 1,800 extremist attacks in the first six months of this year alone, resulting in nearly 4,600 deaths? Your thoughts? The extremist and jihadist problem in West Africa is vast. It has destroyed the social as well as economic and political fabric of those nations that has made them increasingly vulnerable to the kind of events we see today. And to the extent that we are seeing these coups, of course, does not bode well for those people who are trying to fight for the security and stability of those nations, much less talk about democracy. All right, gentlemen, we are going to take a short break now. We'll continue with this discussion. When we come back, we will look at some possible long-term solutions to the problem of coups in Africa. Just stay with us.
Welcome back to Talk Africa. Still with me, David Otto Endele, Dr. Alex Vines, and Dr. Hassan Haneje. Before the break, we looked at the impact of coups in the West and Central African region. Let's now look at some possible long-term uh, solutions uh, to this problem. Uh, David, if you can hear me now, I want to get your view on this because much of Africa's Sahel region has found itself confronting Islamic insurgencies. And we've talked about the massive impact of extremism in the West African region. What previous experiences have been effective in addressing security challenges in the Sahel and what is not working? When it comes to uh, dealing with uh, insecurity, especially uh, as it relates to linked to ISIS or Al-Qaeda, uh, but um, there is also the element of governance. Um, the relative deprivation Dave, David, um, unfortunately, I'm having a bit of trouble with your sound here, but let me put that uh, question to Dr. Haneja here. What previous experiences in solving the, the, the extremism situation in the Sahel region, what is working and what is not working? One thing, especially when it comes to fighting Islamists and uh, other insurgent you know, kind of activities, is you need to localize solutions to them. We cannot have an imported uh, model to try and solve a very unique and a very local problem. So that dynamic is something that needs to be understood. Secondly, the efforts when, when, you know, in fighting extremism as well as uh, the terror activities has to be consistent and has to be backed by enough finances as well as equipment. That, a lot of times, you know, is done in piecemeal. And of course, without much sustainability and commitment of purpose, you cannot fight terror. Uh, thirdly, there is a need for coordination across countries. You cannot, for instance, uh, veer in on Niger problem alone without the complexity of the entire jihadist theater in much of the Sahel, as well as Western North Africa. Uh, Dr. Vines, you've talked about the important position that Nigeria finds itself in uh, right now. But I want to uh, get your views on uh, what you think are some of the, pos uh, the possible solutions here, what has worked, and what exactly you feel Nigeria can do to make a difference. Yeah, so, so some things have worked better. The multinational joint task force for the Chad Basin has worked better. You know, I was in Nigeria for the, uh, the, the, the elections in February. Boko Haram and, and radical groups were not a, a problem for those elections, reflective of both uh, regional cooperation but also improving capability of Nigerian military. So that's one good example, which, which uh, as your speaker, uh, previous speaker had said uh, from Nairobi, uh, is, is, is tailor-made for, for kind of local responses. Um, the, the economic community of West African states wants to be a lot more assertive. There is now a plan for a regional counter-terrorism force. Uh, that will be a brigade-level uh, 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 operation. And there is discussion on ECOWAS and that it will self-fund it, but it will then look at how it can repurpose military equipment, uh, for example, from the drawdown of the UN operation in Mali. These are all very good ideas. And the problem of the Sahel is that there have been a multiplicity of strategies. Uh, there are, from my count, at least 23 of them. Uh, and a number of other initiatives, as, as a part of it, have, have, are in deep trouble. You know, the G5 Sahel, for example, uh, is not fit for purpose any longer. The Accra initiative mm -hmm. isn't really uh, working. It's mostly an information-sharing initiative. The Nwakashot process uh, has never really taken off. So this, again, I think, is where leadership from Nigeria 
and an understanding that actually there needs to be consistency, I think can make a significant difference for Sahel security. Other African countries have uh, also spoken out uh, strongly against the coup here. What do you feel is the position of the African Union? Will it have much weight? Um, the African Union's position is they do not support unconstitutional or extra-constitutional changes in government, and I think that is going to remain. And we, the kind of, uh, I think, statement they have issued, we expect that uh, there should be a response uh, from the, the coup plotters in, in Niger. However, it's limited with regard to what it can actually do. And going by the recent history of coups in West Africa, you have seen outside statements of condemnation as well as uh, perhaps a movement towards sanctioning certain individuals. It does not have enough teeth right now, especially on the continent, to actually do the kind of, for instance, interventions that we used to see ECOWAS do in much of the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Dr. Vines, looking at Mali and Burkina Faso that kicked out uh, French forces, and France actually shifted more of that, uh, more of its personnel now to Niger after pulling out of Mali last year. So, what next for Niger? Yeah, well, Niger is a lot more vulnerable, I think, um, and this is where the putschists, the, the crew potters, are going to wake up to. Now, yes, uh, Mali and Burkina Faso pushed out the French. The, the French obviously have footprint in, in, in Niger, as do the Americans. There are some 1,200 Americans in Niger. Uh, and so there are some very big questions for the military junta now on, on, on what, uh, you know, how they're going to act. Uh, there is widespread condemnation. China also has been very strong on its condemnation. Uh, paradoxically, the, the, the Russian foreign minister has condemned mm -hmm. the, the, the coup. Uh, although the Wagner Group has welcomed the coup and, uh, and, uh, uh, and offered its assistance to, 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 to the junta. So we'll have to see. The next few days, I think, are going to be really important. Uh, I still think that uh, uh, a different Nigeria that has political will to maybe replicate what we saw in the 90s is something that these, the, 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 these coup plotters do not fully appreciate. Uh, and that could be the definitive difference from the response of West Africa to this coup versus previous coups that we've seen in recent years. And David, there are some examples as well to be learned from uh, some countries in West Africa, particularly uh, Nigeria and Ghana. You know, given the historical context, context of coups and political instability in the region, what are some of the lessons that can be drawn from countries such as Nigeria and Ghana who had coups in the past but have now been politically stable for decades? Ghana is now a beacon of democracy in the West African region. Well, I think there are a couple of things that um, uh, needs to be done. Uh, first of all, countries like Ghana and Nigeria, what they've done effectively um, is that they've provided a coup-proof uh, system uh, in a situation whereby uh, the military to power. What you see in countries like Niger Republic, Mali and Burkina Faso and all that, uh, that have had coup d'etat is that the military um, has a lot of leverage. The military is being seen as uh, protecting the strong men. So in the time of, uh, you know, in, in, the, in, in the case of Nigeria, uh, President Ulusujin Obasanjo at the time, you know, had made sure that he decentralized uh, the power of the military and the military is now incapable, you know, of uniting to carry out the coup d'etat. You know, I think this is what um, you know, these other countries should be looking at. But principally, um, I think the best is sure that um, uh, the economic situation, uh, the, situation um, the situation of insecurity, you know, uh, is looked into critically. 
so that it should not be used as an excuse. But I think, you know, more or less, you know, uh, some of the key issues that we've David, seen recently I is that some countries, you know, their leaders have, yeah. I need to cut you off there for a bit. For a bit, uh, apologies for that uh, hitch in, in the technical situation. And I want to come to you, Dr. Haneje, probably, and get uh, your perspective on what you think um, has made Nigeria and Ghana a success here. I think the magic between the success of Nigeria and Ghana lies in ability to build alternative to the military leadership, and that is strong civilian institutions that have now survived the test of time. Second is to reduce the militarization of the political economy of those two countries. And thirdly, is to allow democracy, if any, to be organic, to grow organically uh, by the people and to be able to support those efforts. I think those three things are actually key in ensuring that you build stable uh, countries that, of course, are going to endure a number of challenges. Alex, your thoughts here. What do you think is one of the most critical issues that uh, saved Nigeria and Ghana and, and, you know, and got them right on the path to uh, uh, you know, democracy? So I think Hassan really kind of summarized that really eloquently. I think the point that I'd like to make is that counter-terrorism strategy by foreigners and others was to build up Praetorian guards in the Sahel region. So the result was that the only institutions that often uh, civilian populations also were looking for, for improvement of security, uh, uh, given that they saw that the, 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 the democratically elected governments as possibly ineffective at the worst corrupt, was the military. And so the unintended consequence of this uh, strategy was to turn fragile straits into brittle ones. And I think, again, when you see the justification of the putschists in Niamey, they're saying, well, they, the, the economy has tanked, they're going to improve that, and they're going to improve security. Uh, and there is some popular support in, in, in Niger, no doubt, for this coup, although I have my doubts that it's as popularly supported as it, it, it was initially in Mali, uh, and to a degree in Burkina Faso, and very much so in Guinea, although we need to accept that the Guinean coup was different, because that was a counter-coup to a third-term coup, where the president had changed the constitution and was running again uh, to, for having a third term, which was against uh, the, 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 you know, the majority view of where that country should have been going. And I want to get your final thoughts, all of you. Let me start off with you, Dr. Haneje. I mean, when we're looking, we're looking at um, nine coups uh, in the last few years in that particular Central African, West African region. What do you see as some possible long-term solutions in ensuring lasting peace and political stability in the West and Central African region? Uh, one thing, especially in the West African region, is that as the continent, you know, they should not legitimize when men in, un in uniform start behaving badly. I think because uh, people have been made to get accustomed to certain uh, constitutional changes in government, and they've come to accept it as, as a norm, it is something as a normally itself. And so to the extent that the continent you know, rises up and says we can no longer accept this, however, that the solutions are not going to be foreign or imported, but they're going to be domestic, and the continent and the countries must take responsibility as led by regional organizations such as ECOMOG and ECOS.
All right, gentlemen, we are going to leave it there for the moment. But thank you very much uh, for being a part of this discussion. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our guests, David Otto Endele, Director at the Geneva Center for Africa Security and Strategic Studies. From London, Dr. Alex Vines, Head of the Africa Program at Chatham House. And with me here in studio, Dr. Hassan Khaneji, Director of the Horn International Institute for Strategic Studies and a Conflict Resolution and International Relations Expert. Thank you very much for being here with us. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation online through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter. You can also catch the show on our YouTube playlist. Do keep the conversation going and join us again next week for more Talk Africa. From me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, bye-bye. Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion on uh, the current situation uh, in uh, Niger, uh, where uh, the military, initially the uh, presidential guard, uh, took power uh, just this uh, last past Wednesday. And uh, since that time period, there's been much uh, trepidation and much concern on the part of uh, the United States. Uh, which uh, has a lot at stake uh, in regards uh, to the ongoing uh, attempts to dominate the uh, countries of Africa uh, through military means, through economic means. And, of course, um, the situation in West Africa is volatile. Um, there's much uh, anger and uh, disillusionment on the part of uh, the masses, and that is being reflected in uh, the many uh, positions uh, in which uh, the uh, military forces have taken um, despite uh, the intervention of uh, the United States uh, in regard to Africa, uh, at the same time, uh, these interventions have uh, been, of course, failures uh, because the security situation in these countries, of course, are still uh, problematic. So uh, we're going to continue uh, through the Pan-African Newswire and the Pan-African Journal uh, to uh, discuss and um, analyze and debate uh, these uh, very, very important questions impacting Africa and, in fact, uh, impacting uh, the world. And um, this is uh, something that uh, is not uh, going to go away uh, in the not-too-distant uh, future. And uh, we're going to continue to cover uh, these rapidly unfolding developments that are taking place uh, in Africa. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, we are here uh, every week uh, bringing you some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day uh, from a Pan-Africanist and internationalist perspective, uh, attempting to dissect and to uh, listen uh, to uh, many of the uh, developments that have been occurring uh, across the globe, uh, impacting African people, 
and impacting the international community in general. And if you'd like to have access uh, to this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, the um, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, the special edition of our program uh, for Sunday, uh, July 30th, uh, 2023, all you need to do is to uh, log on to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to uh, also read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of these very, very important uh, issues that are impacting uh, the world community today, all you need to do is go uh, to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And um, we'll take a uh, brief break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program uh, for uh, this week. Uh, my name is Abayomi Azikawe, and uh, the program is the Pan-African Journal Special uh, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And uh, these programs, of course, are brought to you on a weekly basis. And, of course, we are honored to be here to uh, provide this information to the people. We'll be back. Make things right 
Welcome back, and this is the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, July 30th, uh, 2023. That was uh, Angela Winbush with Your Smile. And the Russia-Africa Summit uh, also took place uh, over the weekend, and we want to listen to a report on uh, the Africa-Russia Summit. Uh, Let's listen in. Russian President Vladimir Putin courts African leaders in St. Petersburg in an effort to bolster ties on the continent. Hi everyone, I'm Sean Caleb sitting in today for Anand Naidu and you are watching The Heat. Heads of state from 17 African nations joined President Putin in St. Petersburg this week for the second Russia-Africa summit. Discussions included Moscow's withdrawal from the Black Sea grain deal, the Ukraine conflict, and Russia's efforts to expand trade and defense ties. 
we're going to begin with this report from CGTN's Isabel Nakira in St. Petersburg. Russia says it's opening up new grain routes to ensure food reaches Africa on time so that grain trading is not dependent on the UK and US insurance companies who may be unable to insure ships traversing the Black Sea now that Russia's withdrawn from the grain deal. One of the options being considered is exporting directly to Turkey with payments managed by Qatar. Russia exited the Black Sea Grain Initiative earlier in the month, saying neither it nor Africa was benefiting. The first shipments of 50,000 tons of grain will go to six African countries. But the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres hit back at Russia's offer, saying a handful of donations to some countries won't correct the dramatic impact of the grain deal's collapse. While South Africa isn't one of the recipients, its delegates are optimistic about what's been offered at the summit. I've witnessed uh, contracts being signed for real. I witnessed the Russian uh, delegations, most of them saying, when can we start work? Russia has also written off 23 billion U.S. dollars of Africa's debts, saying it's eager to grow business on the continent. The Russian Export Center will support domestic companies in the country to open up new investment opportunities in Africa. Russia has also committed to supplying and upgrading military hardware in Africa and offered help fighting terrorism and mediating conflicts, though some analysts say conflicts like those in Sudan can only be solved internally. Russia can only take a neutral stance and call on the two warring factions to stop the war. And in recent history, it hasn't had a role in mediating to stop an armed conflict. Moscow says it's concerned about the situation in Niger and is watching it keenly. But on Friday, Russian mercenary leader Prigozhin, who was seen at the summit, said he supported the coup and offered Wagner's services to the self-appointed new leader. Russia has offered to invest in nuclear energy in Africa too. The first plant is still due to be constructed in Egypt, where progress has stalled since Russia first signed a deal with Cairo in 2008. The foreign ministry says threats by the West will not decide from doing business with Africa and warned against interfering in their discussions. Isabel Nakiria, CGTN, St. Petersburg. For more on the Russia-Africa summit, let's bring in our panel. Joining us from Cape Town is Anusha Naidu. She's a senior research fellow with the Institute for Global Dialogue. Here in Washington, D.C., Abdulhali Boru Alaki. He is an African security and policy analyst. And from Moscow, Anton Feriashin. He's a Russian and European history professor at American University. And Mark Sloboda. He is a Moscow-based international affairs and security analyst. I want to thank you all for uh, joining us a lot to get to. Mark, I want to start with you, please. Uh, President Vladimir Putin told African leaders on Friday that he is committed to expanding Russia's role on the continent. Now, what do you think that looks like and how important is this uh, meeting going to be in St. Petersburg? Uh, well, Russian-African trade right now uh, has reached a, some $18 billion a year and is growing. In fact, it has been growing uh, not insignificantly over the last year, 
despite um, Western sanctions against Russia and Western pressure and threats of secondary sanctions uh, against sovereign African countries for daring to do business with Africa. Russia is the world's number one exporter of both grain and fertilizer, and a very significant part of that uh, is, you know, due to uh, shipments to the developing uh, countries of Africa. Uh, but Russia has numerous other business interests um, in Africa, helping uh, develop uh, natural resources. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of oil and uh, mineral expertise to offer. Um, and uh, it has uh, military and security ties with a number of African states as well. So I think Putin is looking to build on all of that. Sanusha, let's pick up on what Mark said. It's true that there's an $18 billion dollar uh, in trade and, and other uh, entities going on with African nations. But that is a far cry from P what Putin wanted just one year ago. He'd hoped for $40 billion uh, in five years. But according to TASS, the Russian agency says it's only reached $18 billion, uh, mostly from arms and grain sales. But it's not a lot when you consider how much perhaps a country like China, $282 billion uh, in trade with African nations. So what are African nations looking at from Russia, uh, from Putin right now? Yeah, uh, I think the issue around the actual figure in terms of uh, trade with the continent between Russia and African countries, I think in the context of looking at the continent and looking at the number of countries that make up the continent, that number becomes very difficult to disaggregate in terms of the value, the scale. I think it will also be important to disaggregate which countries are receiving the bulk of that kind of trade from Russia. Um, also, in the context of breaking down that trade profile is to look at how much does Africa sell to Russia, but also the, uh, how much does um, Africa buy from Russia. And I think the exports from Russia kind of also impact on that trade profile. Right now, the, the, the second Africa, uh, the second Russia-Africa summit, I think from the African side, there are a number of different expectations. I think the first and foremost one is as you're looking at the leaders uh, giving their uh, keynote addresses and if you listen to President Putin's address as well, you're getting a sense that there's also this idea, and, the pres and, and President Ramaphosa of South Africa spoke about it in his address about this kind of independence of your foreign policy by African countries to be able to understand and make their decisions and, as, as sovereign states. So this is, this is becoming a key significant narrative, and, and of course there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot of uh, issues that are, that are circling this narrative at the summit in terms of having to deal with the kinds of narratives that put out the, 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 the impact that, that Africa cannot make these kinds of foreign policy decisions on who it wants to engage with. And that is becoming a key issue in that, and President Putin is picking, up, picking it up quite uh, succinctly and utilizing it in terms of talking about this narrative and, and, and where Africa fits in the whole broader context of the, of the global arena. I think secondly is the question on the, on, on the access to, to food security and the promise that President Putin made to, to five or six African countries that they'll get grain free of charge and then of course the writing off of debt. So I right. think at this point in time it's also about Africa's sovereignty and independence in terms of asserting its agency and voice. Abdul, I, I think one thing that the African nations have been very unified on is talking about this Black Sea uh, grain deal. Uh, the fact that Russia pulled out of it and with the global food shortage so critical right now, the UN uh, General Secretary uh, 
weighed in on this, and here's what Antonio Gutierrez had to say about this. Uh, it is clear that uh, when taking out of the market millions and millions of tons of grains, it is clear that, based on economic laws, that will lead to higher prices than the ones that would exist with the normal access of Ukrainian grains to international markets. And this increase of prices will be paid by everybody, everywhere. What's your take on that? Uh, the African nation is clearly very concerned because uh, everybody is so concerned about the most developing nations, the poorest nations. Those are the ones that really stand to suffer the greatest now that this uh, deal has been scrapped, at least for the time being. No, thank you so much. I think uh, one of the things that we need to do is to step back a little bit and look at where we are within the geopolitics of within which this is taking place. For instance, we might not be in a multipolar world, but we are definitely not in a unipolar world as well. So in terms of Russia's um, uh, uh, foray into the African continent, I think it is coming within that kind of realm. Secondly, to your point about the food insecurity where for a country like Somalia, for instance, uh, last year, farming was barely averted, right? And uh, Somalia imported 90% of its food aid. I'm just using Somalia as an example for now. This is critical. But I think we should not also lose sight of the fact that majority of the people who are benefiting from the great deal are not necessarily from the African countries. Sure, they will suffer the acute reality of that number of metric tons of grain being mm -hmm. taken out of circulation. But in reality, Europe disproportionately uh, benefits from this. But one of the things that really that needs to be spoken about is not just so much about Africa and Russia or Africa versus Russia and others, but it's also the question of Africans themselves. Why is Africa suffering disproportionately when it comes to food insecurity? I think the ball is within the African policymakers, not just running away from more accountability from the West and running into Russia, but also saying, look, we can double deep figuring out where gives us the best deal for the people who are in need of the aid. Uh, Anton, as we mentioned earlier, President Putin does, is pledging to send up to 50,000 uh, tons of grain to six African nations free of charge. This is what uh, President Putin had to say about that. Our country will continue supporting needy states and regions, in particular with its humanitarian deliveries. We seek to actively participate in building a fairer system of the distribution of resources. We are taking maximum efforts to avert a global food crisis. So, Anton, 50,000 tons of free grain, I get that. But if you look at what the UN says the agreement did in the previous year, it was 32 million uh, tons of, of corn and, and grain. Tell me what you're thinking right now uh, about President Putin's pledge, and how do you think the African nations are going to absorb this? Sure, I think that the African nations will be uh, grateful for at least uh, tens of thousands of, um, of tons of grain. Uh, let's keep in mind that of the 32 million that you just mentioned, um, only about 3% went to the countries that are in most need of this grain. And all your viewers can easily check these numbers and all the stats because they're on the UN's uh, Black Sea Grain 
uh, website, which has all the bar graphs and the high graphs to represent where the grain is going. Um, you played a clip from General Secretary Guterres a second ago, and he's absolutely right about the Ukrainian grains absent from the market driving up the prices. But he also conveniently forgot to mention that Russian grain, which was supposed to be uh, exported uh, to the rest of the world, not just to Africa, and which was part of the deal, also been blocked by the Western nations. And its absence from the world's market, and Russia is the largest producer and exporter of grain in the world, has also driven up prices. Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, geopolitical games going on. The remarkable thing that I found about um, uh, Russia-Africa summit today, and especially the roundtable speeches from all of the representatives of the countries, is that they addressed each other as equals. There was no lecturing by the Russians or by anyone else of other parties about what they should do, why they should do it, who mm -hmm. they should associate with, and who they shouldn't. And in that sense, this was quite a different deal to what we've seen fairly recently during, for example, the EU-Latin America summit, and by the way, from Kamala Harris's visit to three African nations um, in March of this year, where it was a lot of ordering around and lecturing, and only $100 million that the United States committed to those nations, which, of course, is a drop in the bucket for a continent that has a billion and a half people in right, terms right. of population. Uh, Abdullah, I'd like you to expand, because when I was watching Anton respond there just a second ago, I could see you shaking your head in the monitor. How do you think African nations are, what their take is on President Putin's pledge for the free grain, and also the fact that this, this grain deal is completely up in the air at this point. The grain deal um, might be up in the air, but if Russia follows through in what it is promising, then the impact of them pulling out of the deal will not be as severe. Like what, what, what I was noting when Anton was speaking is the reality that this is made about African countries going to suffer when in reality, for the period of when the deal was in place, disproportionately, it's not the African countries that were getting. I understand mm -hmm. that the, the impact of removing that, that amount of grain from the market would lead to Africans paying a steep price in terms of how they will get it within the market. But I think it should be made very clear that um, they were not the disproportionate beneficiaries of that. Europe is also benefiting from this. And also there are, there are nuances around, you know, the sanctions and the banking and the shipping industries that Russia was asking in order for it to continue with the grain deal. So I just want to step back and say again, you know, I mean, like the reality is the Western countries will need to do more than just saying, or if you will, lecturing African mm -hmm. countries, no, don't take this side, don't take that side. Where is a European Africa policy? Where is the implementation of the American Africa policy? So that Africans are given a menu of options from which they can, they, they, they can choose. I'm not sitting here suggesting that African countries are angels and that, that kind of, of situation. They need also their own agency rather than constantly telling people, oh, no, we need to be given a chance. African leaders need to step up to the plate and take the initiative, not always reacting to either what the Russians are saying 
or, or what the Western countries are saying. Um, Sanusha, let me ask you, do you think that the 17 African nations, there were significantly more, I believe more than 40, and I'm working from memory, uh, in the last Russia-Africa summit. Do you believe these nations come and they're very united? Are they discussing things with President Putin at a place of strength, at a place of power? Do they have the upper hand in any way at this point? Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, the focus on the number of African leaders that are in attendance at the summit and what was it in 2019, and, the, and that has been the narrative that, it, you know, this tends to suggest that African leaders are moving away or there's a significant drop in that kind of engagement with, with President Putin and with Russia. I think you've got to go beyond the numbers. Um, if you listen to some of the speeches that were made at the roundtable, the fact of the matter is some of those uh, leaders in attendance are leaders that um, also have a relationship with, um, with the U.S., with the, with, with, with the EU, with the Western world. And it does raise questions around how they want to actually leverage themselves. The second point to make is that it's not just the African leaders that are there. It's the, AU, uh, the chairperson of the AU Commission. It's the uh, president of the, of the New Development Bank of the BRICS. And there are other ministers that are representing their countries and not necessarily uh, heads of states that are in attendance, for example, from Kenya. And Kenya was quite a critic of, the, of, the, of, of, of the Russia's withdrawal from the Black Sea Grain deal because it raises raised questions around how they're also seeing this relationship with Russia in terms of the impact and the fallout from that. So I think what is important to note is that there is a unified set of, 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 of issues that they're coming around, and that is they're recognizing that for, the first, mm -hmm. uh, for, 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 for a period of time, they, they don't want to be dictated to. They find a feel right. that they need that space to engage. Now, the question, I think, as my colleagues have raised, is how does African agency, not just talking about political leadership, et cetera, how do they represent the people on the ground? Because I think the summit also brings into focus the question of the governance issues in Africa as well, in terms of what kind of united front are you taking to the summits? Do you have a set of, of issues that are common, uh, common areas of interest and consensus. And it doesn't have to be everybody going with their national interest, but it talks to the African continental free trade agreements, continent, continental development plans, etc. And I think some of the challenges that we see that is being about uh, the issues at the global level in right. terms of where Africa is putting, I think also raises questions in terms of Africa's own governance issues between itself and its uh, leaders and their people. Anton, also uh, President Putin has said that many nations did not show because uh, the West, particularly the United States, were leaning on these nations not to show up. And at the same time, Russia said that the West is using this grain deal as political uh, blackmail. But Kenya's foreign minister is calling the, the uh, grain deal a stab in the back. Explain Moscow's stand on all of this. Well, Moscow's stand is that uh, this was a deal, which by definition means that there are two or more sides involved in it. Uh, the deal was that uh, Russians would allow Ukrainian grain exports to proceed through the Black Sea in exchange for their own grain exports and exports of their fertilizer to proceed from Russian ports to the rest of the world. They uh, patiently waited for almost a year, nine months to be exact, um, for the Europeans and the West in general to fulfill their end of the deal, and not a single uh, part of what the Russians were promised, but 
the deal was signed in Istanbul was something by the way. So after nine months of unilaterally allowing Ukraine to uh, leave Ukraine and not being able to export their own process, they decided to um, not renew the deal. Um, that's the Russian perspective on things. They have, by the way, also clearly stated that the moment that the West actually fulfills the obligations that it agreed to through the UN, they will also allow grain exports from Ukraine to restart. So we'll see what happens. Okay. Uh, Mark, I apologize. It's been a while since I've chatted with you. You've been very patient. If you want to follow up on anything that's been said, please, by all means. But I kind of want to switch gears to talk about the fact that the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, was photographed meeting on the sidelines with African officials. And the group has operated in several African nations since 2017. What can you tell us about the Wagner's group, its operations in uh, the continent of Africa, and is military muscle something that Russia sees as a way to expand its presence throughout that continent? Yeah, uh, first let me know that the uh, Kiev regime is going to continue to export large amounts of its grain uh, from the Arab parts of uh, the country that it controls uh, through Europe. Um, it's true that numerous uh, Eastern European states have blocked uh, banned uh, Ukrainian grain and agricultural products so it doesn't lower the prices of their own farmers, but they do allow transit rights. And it is, uh, you know, the European states of NATO, as well as China, that were actually the biggest beneficiaries uh, mm. of the grain deal. Um, uh, secondly, uh, far be it from me to disagree with the Secretary General. I'm, I'm not an expert on uh, global uh, food markets. But I can't help but notice that the Economist last week uh, talking about a report of global uh, food market experts uh, concluded that actually due to bumper crops of grain this year from Russia and Australia, that uh, they actually didn't think that uh, Ukraine's uh, loss of uh, grain trade through the Black Sea hmm. was going to really negatively affect the global market on food at all. In fact, they thought that it might actually lower prices this year compared to last year, despite. So it appears that, you know, uh, that Ukrainian grain isn't actually that important to global markets wow. at all. I mean, I'm I'm sure that there are some Spanish ham pigs that may suffer. I understand that they were some of the biggest recipient. Uh, you know, they may have to go on a weight loss program. Uh, but, you know, for the rest of the world, um, I, I think they're going to get along just uh, fine. Okay, we'll see uh, how that plays out. Uh, now, what about, um, what about the, the, the Wagner group? Yeah. Um, so uh, Wagner is a forbidden organization in Russia due to a recent attempt to either seize power in the country, a very aborted, or an attempt to force uh, whom the um, tycoon, uh, who is the financial backer of the uh, mercenary organization, to dictate who the uh, Russian Secretary of Defense should be in the middle of a conflict. He's, he, um, uh, you know, as part of a deal, was uh, supposedly ostracized from the country. Uh, what his presence in St. Petersburg, palling it up with various African leaders, may say about the reality of that situation? Uh, was it all some kind of smoke and mirrors? Hmm. I can't say. But 
Wagner does have significant security contracts in Europe, in Africa, uh, and a number of African countries have turned to Wagner specifically after kicking out French um, military forces, particularly in West Africa, right. where see France's colonial legacy as malicious and having a negative impact uh, still on the sovereignty of those right. countries. And it appears that Wagner's business interests in Africa, those security contracts will continue. Sanusha, the talks have really been dominated by efforts to bring Russia and Ukraine back to the negotiating table to try to find a way uh, out of this uh, long conflict. And uh, Ramaphosa, who you mentioned earlier, has been one of the people leading this push. And here's what he had to say just a bit earlier. As South Africa, we are steadfast in our position that negotiation and dialogue and adherence to the United Nations Charter are necessary for the peaceful and just resolution of conflict. It is our hope that constructive engagement and negotiation can bring about an end to the ongoing conflict between the Russian Federation and Ukraine. Well, Putin said he's going to look over this uh, information, but one thing that the African nations were very clear about, they want to be taken very seriously and they really want to hand in finding a way to bring peace to that region. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, it is part of the group that went to Russia and Ukraine as part of the African peace mission. It is a heavy toll on these uh, six uh, countries that were part of that delegation that, was, uh, that went in to discuss both with uh, the, the, the Ukrainian president and, of course, the Russian president around a peace mission and a peace in, intervention. And as President Ramaphosa has indicated in that speech, it's part of South Africa's um, narrative and part of its peace uh, resolution approach to peace and stability and development that you look for a peaceful transition and a resolution in terms of the UN process. And I think that is going to be something whether or not the, the, delegate, uh, the, the, the African peace mission is able to achieve mm. what it needs to achieve. Because really right now, at the moment, it, it's much larger than just the African nation. It's countries sure. that are also within the purview, within the neighborhood, who are basically resistant to a peaceful resolution in terms of what kind of peace accord you want to have and what kind of conditions of that peace accord will be acceptable. So it's quite a difficult one to, to, to call right now. But I suspect that the African countries also remember that this is something that they right. caught in the collateral damage of in terms of the fallout with this crisis. Abdul Holly, we don't have a lot of time left, but I'd like to get you to weigh in on this topic. Yeah, I think uh, it's a long shot. Uh, symbolically, it's a good thing that they want to do. But in the long run, I think it will take more than good intentions to, to strike a deal for a conflict that has gone on for over 500 days now. And, uh, Mark, I'll give you perhaps the final word in all this. Uh, let me get your take on this, because uh, clearly so many countries around the world are trying to find some kind of solution to get these two sides talking. Do you think it is really the long shot that Abdali uh, just talked about? I think a lot of people would probably say yes. Yeah, the Kiev regime has actually passed laws forbidding any of its politicians, including its uh, leader, the, the president, Zelensky, from conducting any negotiations with Russia. Russia is willing to conduct negotiations, but only not only on the terms that it set out at the beginning 
but because of the escalation by NATO, uh, those also include recognizing the referendum results in Zaporozhye and Hairstone as well. So Russia's position has only toughened. I don't see peace anytime in the short or medium term. I think this conflict could go on, go on for years. I want to thank our panel very much. It's been an engaging and interesting conversation and a lot more to cover. Sadly, this story isn't going away, so I'm sure we'll talk about it again. And that does it for this edition of The Heat. I'm Sean Caleb here in Washington, D.C. Thanks, everyone, for watching. Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion on uh, the Russia-Africa summit that was held uh, over the weekend uh, in St. Petersburg. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, for uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. We'll be right back. broadcast. This is the early morning hour of Monday, 
on July 31st, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, all this uh, year, we have been reflecting on uh, the six decades of mass struggle led by the African-American people in the United States uh, some six decades ago, 60 years. Uh, the Birmingham campaign and many other campaigns across the country fought valiantly uh, for uh, the acquisition of civil rights, equality, and political empowerment uh, for the African-American people. We'll listen to a report from that time period. Uh, this will be the spring of 1963 in regard to developments in Birmingham in that year. We face, therefore, a moral crisis as a country and a people. It cannot be met by repressive police action. It cannot be left to increase demonstrations in the streets. It cannot be quieted by token moves or talk. It is a time to act in the Congress, in your state and local legislative body, and above all, in all of our daily lives. President Kennedy this week moved against America's racial crisis in two directions. Encouraged but not misled by the successful entry of two Negroes at the University of Alabama, the president went on national television to ask America not only to change her laws, but also to reorder the personal relationship between white and Negro citizens. But even as he spoke, that relationship was strained and broken in countless communities across the nation. Within hours, Mississippi's most prominent Negro leader was murdered from ambush. The next day, his mourners were greeted by club-swinging police. In Danville, Virginia, the mayor denounced Negro demonstrators as a bunch of criminals. And in Maryland, Governor Miller Taws tonight ordered state national guardsmen into Cambridge where merchants are refusing to sell firearms because of the racial strife. For the South, for the North, for the nation, this is the gravest domestic crisis since the Depression. It is the subject of tonight's eyewitness report. Your correspondent, substituting for Charles Collingwood, Roger Mudd. Eyewitness, the big news of the week. Tonight, witness, the president faces the racial crisis. you by Polaroid Corporation, makers of the Polaroid Land Camera. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities, whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if in short he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay? 
100 years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet, not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. We preach freedom around the world, and we mean it. And we cherish our freedom here at home. But are we to say to the world, and much more importantly, to each other, that this is a land of the free, except for the Negroes? That we have no second-class citizens, except Negroes? That we have no class or caste system, no ghettos, no master race, except with respect to Negroes. Now the time has come for this nation to fulfill its promise. We have a right to expect that the Negro community will be responsible, will uphold the law, but they have a right to expect that the law will be fair, that the Constitution will be colorblind, as Justice Holland said at the turn of the century. This is what we're talking about, and this is a matter which concerns this country and what it stands for. And in meeting it, I ask the support of all of our citizens. Thank you very much. First reaction from the generally recognized Negro leadership, Martin Luther King. I feel that it was a masterpiece. Uh, I think that the president spoke passionately to the moral issues in the integration struggle. And I think he made it very clear that the government, the administration, will now engage in vigorous, forthright action uh, to bring about the realization of the American dream. I think that his uh, pending legislative uh, program, if enacted and implemented, will do a great deal to solve problems that we face uh, now in the integration struggle, and I think it will bring the whole nation uh, closer to the realization of the American dream. But the approving voice of nonviolence wasn't the only voice on a Harlem street corner. Some man going to do for all these people, and for me too, when I'm out of work. The thing, well, I think it's just gone too far now. It's going to have to go where it is going now, you know, slowly picking up, going toward violence, and like, and it's going to be a, it's going to have to be a busting loose before uh, uh, this thing is really set. For I'm, I'm a probationary member of Corps right now, see, and I'm trying, I'm trying to see this nonviolence work. I promised myself if this nonviolence doesn't work, then I'm beating it out of Corps and I'm going to the Muslims, see. Well, for me, for one, I don't go for speeches. We've been having speeches a long time, all for years and years speeches. And my, my, I come to the conclusion that the only thing for this Afro-American to do here in this country is retaliate. What I mean by retaliate, I mean take a life for a life. That's exactly what I mean. All these speeches and can on don't mean nothing. The time has come when a white man take a life, you take two. Restract retaliation, bro. That's how I feel, and that's how that uh, I, I don't listen to nothing no more but blood. That's all. Equally unimpressed with the president's thinking, the Southern delegation in Congress, Senator Russell Long of Louisiana. 
Well, there are a lot of moderate Southern people who have been accepting the Negro more and more and doing what they could to help him advance his cause. Difficulty is uh, that uh, this federal fight and this federal compulsion has alienated a, a great number of Southern white people who uh, previously had been doing everything they could to uh, help the colored man to improve himself. Uh, I don't know what the answer to it is going to be, except that uh, Southern senators will, I believe, uh, proceed to do everything within their power to explain the point of view of their people and to maintain the view that the great majority of people in the South uh, believe in. By everything within their power, the Southern senators mean specifically their ultimate weapon, the filibuster, or as they refer to it, extended debate. There seems no question that a filibuster is coming. But at this time and under these circumstances, the administration leadership is reasonably confident they can break it or through compromise enact almost all of the president's civil rights program. To the president's broader moral appeal that the individual white citizen re-examine his own personal relations with the Negro, there came within hours one answer, sudden, brutal, and defiant, murder in Mississippi. That story in a moment. I remember distinctly one individual uh, calling with uh, a pistol on the other end and he hit the cylinder and of course uh, you could hear that it was a revolver and he said this is for you I said well whenever my time comes I'm ready that was Medgar Evers Mississippi field secretary for the NAACP who lived in this house on a segregated street in Jackson his time came early Wednesday morning somebody poked a rifle through the wire fence and shot Medgar Evers in the back Negroes have been lynched before, but the aroused temper of the times and the vicious circumstances of the act seem to be turning this murder into a rallying cry. You can hear the note in Mrs. Evers' words to Dan Rather after her husband's death. I would like for everyone to search their own souls, those that are staunch segregationists, those that are moderate, and those that are in the fight, I think it's time for everything to come to the light and for all of us to work even more harder to make this nation the type of nation it should be. My husband lived for his work, for the cause. He was totally dedicated to it. And I would hate to think that the sacrifice that he made while he was living and also by his death would go in vain. Jackson Mayor Alan Thompson talked with Nelson Benton. I think it's one of the worst things we've had in our city in a long time. As I mentioned in my statement yesterday, it's one of the most terrible tragedies. All of us in Jackson are humiliated and shamed at the thought that such a thing would happen or should happen in our city. And then we are taking every, every kind of measure to discover the criminal. We've offered a $5,000 reward. And in addition to that, we've employed extra men. 30 of our policemen are being used just for that particular purpose at this time. Why do you feel that the races should be separated? In well, of course, the first thing, I grew up in it. That's been what I've known all of my life, all of my parents, all of my grandparents' life. 
up until recently, it's white, as I mentioned before. The separation of the races, white. All you've got to do is to look around you. They say they're not happy. The Negro's not happy. Well, who is happy? Completely. There's always a little tugging at you. You want to be happier. You want to advance. You want to do more. But it still goes back to earning the right to do more. But I believe that a separation of the races works better because it's more peaceful. Because you don't have the continual antagonism. Because it's worked in this city. And because, as I said, you cannot argue with success. The mood of Negroes in Jackson this week has been one of shock and anger. But no concrete plan of action has yet emerged. Some of the younger Negroes, like student Eddie O'Neill, are openly talking of violence. For over 100 years, the Negro has repressed and suppressed all the hatred and violence and all of the degradation, all of the humiliating circumstances that we have tolerated here in this Southland. And the young people want you to know that there is no more room in their souls yeah. to suppress it. Like any normal human being, when there has been too much kept in, there has to be some kind of veil, there has to be some kind of escape latch, that all that that has been packed in for centuries may somehow come out. And if the mayor, and if the governor of this state, and if other responsible leaders across our Southland will not adhere to the peaceful attitudes of negotiations across the council table, that I must be afraid, along with you, that it must erupt in the violence and the most violent way that we know how, in mass demonstrations and in other ways. Old Miss student James Meredith believes violence in Mississippi now would hurt the Negro cause. Well, uh, my biggest concern in this regard is that uh, with the present circumstance and the present tension, if it keeps mounting, we will have major racial violence. And this, I don't feel, will benefit anyone, including the Negro. In that particular statement, James Meredith reflects the thinking of a majority of what little Negro leadership there is in Mississippi. They know the death of Medgar Evers has given them a strong lever in Washington, and they don't want street violence to reduce its effectiveness. As a group, Mississippi Negroes are probably the most fearful and disorganized of any in the nation. They're not really inclined to violence, even in the face of something like the Evers' death, simply because they are so afraid. An emotional flare-up of some kind, particularly tomorrow, the day of the funeral, between young Negroes and on-edge police is of course possible. But the better likelihood is that Mississippi Negroes will continue to seethe in comparative quietness for at least a little while longer and hope for more help from the outside. This is Dan Rather in Jackson, Mississippi. In the South, America's racial struggle takes its most extreme and so far most violent form. There, the fight is for legal equality. But again and again in his speech, the president stressed that the racial problem is a national problem. A report on the Negro's drive for economic equality in the North after this message. The Negro baby born in America today, regardless of the section of the state in which he is born, has about one half. Welcome back, and uh, that was a report on developments uh, from 60 years ago, this year, uh, 1963, 
and unfortunately we're still today plagued uh, by similar problems as existed in uh, 1963. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, uh, July 30th, and this early morning hour of Monday, uh, July 31st, uh, 2023. And we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with uh, Wes Montgomery uh, from the album entitled Montgomery Land, released in This is Abayani Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Thank mm-hmm. you.